Well, last week we journeyed along with the explorer Christopher Columbus as we discovered that God had been at work for hundreds of years, even before Columbus, to bring the gospel to the new world. And we found in, in his own logbooks, in, in Columbus's logbooks and his journals, revealed that his desire to sail around the world was not so much for the kingdom of Spain but rather for the kingdom of God. And Columbus felt led by Scripture. He said that himself. He felt led by the Holy Spirit to come across the Atlantic Ocean, which nobody had done before. Well, Leif Erikson supposedly did that. But uh, the, um, he wanted to go out because he felt like God was calling him to carry out this plan. And they, he had this idea that you could get to India by sailing west across the Atlantic and meet on the other side. And, and so he didn't know that there was a new world to be discovered. But he, when he did discover it, he said it was simply a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. And we read some of those verses that he pointed out that he thought God's Word was pointing to a new world that he just happened to trip over. And so he gave thanks to God for the discovery. And he named the, the land in the Bahamas, the island that he found, he named it Holy Savior. And even his name, Christopher, means Christ-bearer. That's what his name means. So, of course, he wasn't really expecting to find America. He figured to circle the globe all the way around and find India on the other side of the ocean. But he still seemed happy enough when he found the land that he did find. I guess I wouldn't mind much either if I went on a cruise and accidentally wound up in the Bahamas. I'd be okay with that. But uh, these days, people will try to tell you that America was discovered and founded by secularists or at, at best theists or deists. People who believe that maybe there's a God, but He doesn't really do much and He doesn't really matter. And so, yeah, we go to church, but we're just going to form a country because we think that we want something apart from Europe. And, and that's kind of the attitude today. There, there are those who will even go as far as... It's, recently, it's become popular, and the president has kind of alluded to this, uh, even though he hasn't said it, but that America was discovered by Muslims, which is really kind of odd, because it's, it's completely against recorded history. I, I guess, in an odd way, we can be thankful to the Muslims for having temporarily conquered Spain which blocked the land passage to the east because the people in Europe wanted to get to India where all the spices were, and they couldn't go across the land, and so it motivated people to try to find a way by sea to get to India. And so because the Muslims had blocked traffic from west to east, Columbus was, was funded. That's one part of the thing that, that uh, got the Europeans to help fund his passage by sea to go find the Orient. So I guess that's one way the Muslims helped to discover America. But uh, God definitely opened up quite a few doors. He used world events and He used people that were there to provide a way for, a Columbus, for Columbus to achieve his dream of crossing the Atlantic Ocean. And, and it was done in plenty of time so that the pilgrims later on would have somewhere to take the Gospel to. And we're told Columbus said that he was a Christ-bearer, that, that his purpose was to take Christianity around the world. That that's what he wrote in his recordings that he wrote. He said, my purpose, my, my motivation is the Holy Spirit 
And my purpose is to take Christ around the world. That's what he said. And then we learned how much we learned last week how much work God had done between that discovery of America and when the pilgrims got there, how God had opened up a piece of land for them to be able to settle on before they ever got there. They didn't even know what he had done. Um, and how there were God had put in place right next to where the pilgrims would land English-speaking Indians who would help them to survive and to thrive in their new settlement. Can you imagine what it would be like? You leave your home. If, I mean, we don't have any new land in America, but let's say we had a colony on Mars and we, we got on a spaceship. We're trying to escape the religious persecution in America and so we get on our spaceship to Mars and we get there to Mars and then we realize that things are not working out so well and because of lack of food and oxygen or whatever, we lose half of the people who went with us. That's what would happen to the pilgrims that first Christmas, first winter. And so we lose half our people, and then we're sitting in our lander wondering how in the world we're going to survive. And in walks somebody who lives on Mars already, who happens to speak our language, and says, I'm going to teach you how to build shelters on Mars, how to grow crops hydroponically so they can produce oxygen that you can breathe. I'm going to teach you how to thrive here on the Martian surface so that you can live. And that's probably the kind of surprise that the pilgrims got when they drifted across the world and landed in a new continent and were trying to figure out how they were going to even make it. And in comes an Indian who walks down through town and says, hello, in English, and offers to live with them and to teach them how to survive. Because most of the Indians had, were more than happy to kill the white people. They didn't want invaders in their territory, and so they were happy to just get rid of them. But it just so happened that when the pilgrims landed, there, were a, there was a friendly tribe that was their neighbors. And, uh, I mean, they had a very rough journey. I'm sure many of you have heard, learned about the pilgrims as you've been growing up and going to school. They... They had escaped persecution in England, the religious persecution. They were, they were being jailed and fined and things like that because they were separatists. They felt like the, the church was making rules and regulations that they weren't really supposed to live that way. And they wanted to live according to what the Bible said and not what the, because the church was the government. The government ran the church. And so the government was telling them how they should worship. And they didn't like that. So they had uh, gone to Holland and to try to get away from that religious persecution. And they lived there for more than a decade. They were there for quite a while, but their kids were starting to wander off and they were worried that war might start up again between Holland and Spain. So the, the, cult, the bad cultural influences and the fear of war drove them to decide that they wanted to go to the New World. And they wanted to join the colony that was there in Virginia. And they wanted to, have to, to build their own place and have their own land out there in the New World. And so they bought a ship in Holland. It was called the Speedwell. It was a small ship. And they took that ship to England to meet up with some other of the, the separatists and pilgrims. Um, and they met up with a ship there that was called the Mayflower. I'm sure you've heard of that. And the Mayflower had been rented for them by a company that they had agreed. The company said, we will fund your trip. We'll, we'll rent your ship. We'll make sure that you get across the ocean you send back natural resources to pay for your, the, this funding because they didn't have the money to get across. So this company funded the, the expense of the trip and they promised for the next seven years to return natural resources that they found in the new world and that would pay for their, their uh, 
travel. So the Mayflower and the Speedwell both set out from England in August, and so it was a nice time to sail. It was the end of the summer, and the Speedwell sprang a leak. So they had to put back in for repairs, and that took a few weeks, and the, the second time they, they set out, the Speedwell sprang another leak, and it was bad enough that they realized they weren't going to be able to get across the ocean with this boat. So they had to leave it behind, and they had to leave a number of the passengers behind. It, it was By now it was September, and that meant worse weather was coming on fast, and so they consolidated what they could. Eleven of the passengers from the Speedwell came to the Mayflower, and the rest, there was about 20 more that they had to return to England and stay there. They Later on, they sold the Speedwell, and uh, they recorded that eventually it was repaired well, and it made lots of journeys, So they, but they got rid of that one. They replaced it with a ship called the Fortune, and the Fortune came to Plymouth about a year later. So they, they ended up with two boats, but they got rid of the Speedwell. But as you all know, I'm sure, that this was 1620, when this was going on, and the pilgrims arrived in America. They made that crossing. It was a, an arduous two months at sea, and they were fighting storms all the way because there's a westerly wind that blows across the Atlantic, and it took them a long time to, to fight that wind and get across, and there were storms. I can only imagine how awful that trip must have been. There were 102 people that were all crammed into the gun deck because there's, there's three decks. There's the top deck, there's the gun deck where the, where the guns are. That's where you can have people. And then below that's the storage where you have all your cargo. And so they're all in the, the gun deck, which is smaller than this room. It's a 24-foot by 58-foot by 5.5-foot tall space. I mean, it's a cramped quarters. And there's 102 passengers all living in this gun deck, along with the cannons. And they had a big boat. They had a, a large, there was a long boat on top, and then they had this large boat that they were bringing across so that they would have something to sail in once they got there. And that was inside that gun deck with them. So all these people and all this stuff was there. They, they were tossed about for 66 days. Um, they had no toilet. It was probably all they had was a bucket they would have to dump. There was you know, obviously no running water on board a wooden ship. The, and they were so they were stuck below decks for most of the journey because the weather was terrible. I mean, when it was clear, they could probably get up and if they weren't in the way of the sailors. There was about 30 crew who drove the ship for them. And so they would, you know, if the weather was nice, they could probably get up and maybe get a little fresh air. But most of the time, they were cramped down inside that gun deck. They, so after 66 days, they hit Cape Cod in November. So you realize how cold November was for us. Well, they had a, a pretty cold winter themselves. They, they had planned to go to Virginia. They were going to go to the colony of Virginia. That's the contract they had signed with the company. But the storms just made it too difficult. They could not get down to Virginia, so they decided they'll just stay there in, in Cape Cod where they could you know, stay out of the weather. They stayed on board the ship, and that's where they signed the Mayflower Compact, which I'm sure you've all heard of. The, the document that they wrote that they decided, we, we're not in Virginia, so let's go ahead and, and we'll sign a covenant amongst each other so that when we do find a place to live, that we covenant that we will have a government, we'll make a government, and we will live in agreement with each other, we'll do what's good for the, for the colony, and we'll take care of one another. And this is just a, a piece of the body that reads out of the Mayflower Compact. And this will tell you why they're doing what they're doing. It says, having undertaken for the glory of God 
and the advancements of the Christian faith and honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia, do by these presents solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and one another covenant and combine ourselves together in a civil body politic for our better ordering and the preservation and furtherance of the ends aforesaid and by virtue hereof enact, constitute, and frame such just and equal laws, ordinances, acts, and constitutions and offices from time to time as shall be thought most meet and convenient for the general good of the colony unto which we promise all due submission and obedience. So they all agreed that they're going to they're going to come up with, with laws and they're going to have assign officers to carry out those laws and that they all agree that they're going to live by this covenant together. And the purpose was written right in the beginning for the glory of God and the advancements of the Christian faith. And that they're ordering all this for the preservation and the furtherance of those two things. That this is all done. Their colony was for God's glory. Their government was for God's glory. The whole reason for this was to advance the Christian faith. They were there to spread the gospel. And that's what they wanted to do. They chose to form and live by a local government, by their, by their own creation, in order to advance the Christian faith. And after everything that they had been through, after that arduous journey, it was still clear that their main motivation was to be Christ-bearers. To bring Jesus Christ into the new world. Just like Columbus when he first left Spain. So from the beginning, the people who are coming over and, and doing this searching and, and this adventure and finding this new world, they are wanting to take Jesus around the world. They are wanting to follow the Great Commission where Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples. And, and so while they're parked there in Cape Cod, they picked some of the, strong, the, the most able-bodied men and they took the, a boat ashore to kind of search out a good place where they can start building a settlement. And it took them several weeks to, to find a spot that they could uh, take over. After several weeks, they discovered what looked to be an abandoned Indian community where there were no... It looked like somebody had settled there, but there was nobody anymore. If you remember last week, we talked about the plague that wiped out thousands and thousands of Indians that there was right there along the shore in that um, area of the country. And because so many thousands of Indians had been killed off by disease, most of the other Indians around the area didn't want to go into the land. So it was an open land that anybody could move into. And that's what the, the pilgrims found. And they found this place in, at, at Plymouth that had a good harbor, had plentiful water supply that they could drink, and it had cleared fields that somebody had already been there. They'd cleared out the fields. So they knew somebody had lived there, but it was obviously empty for a while. So they moved in. They named it Plymouth. It was named after the place that they left in England because there was a place named Plymouth where the ships had left and um, apparently they couldn't think of anything more creative. So it was pretty cold. So understandably, they just said, let's call it Plymouth and uh, make it feel like home. But by December, the Mayflower had made it down to Plymouth and left Cape Cod and they went down to this new harbor in, at, at Plymouth. They continued to live on the ship because it was so cold, they didn't have any shelters yet, so they would send the men ashore during the day to build shelters. And uh, unfortunately, because it was so cold and so wet, many people succumbed to sickness in the climate, and they were probably a, a, a affected by pneumonia because of the, the atmosphere and by scurvy because of their diet. They were weakened by a, they had eaten 
uh, mostly salted foods that would preserve, that you know, would stay well. By the time they were on board ship, they left England with a whole bunch of salted stuff, which is not really good for you. If that's all you eat is salted foods, you can understand. And so they didn't have vitamins. They didn't understand about vitamin C. So a lot of them probably developed the, the symptoms of scurvy and pneumonia and, and who knows what else. But they, they, lost, so, they lost half of their, their passengers. There were only 52 people that survived that first winter as they were parked there in the harbor and building the shelters on shore. When the Mayflower was fine, when they finished settling a colony and the Mayflower was ready to go back to England again, it only had half the crew had survived. So many people of the crew had also died, not just passengers. And so it wasn't until spring that they had finally got moved in and they, they had seen Indians, they'd caught sight of them, but they hadn't really made any contact. And it wasn't until that spring in March that they met. Uh, the, Wampanoag, the Wampanoag tribe, which was their neighbors about 50 miles to the south um, of Plymouth, where they were, and the chief they called Massasoit. We've talked a little bit about Massasoit. He was one of the few Indian chiefs in the region, probably in most of North America, that was willing to be a friend to the white man rather than just kill him when they met him. And that was another way that God was looking out for the pilgrims. He had friendly neighbors there ready to greet him. And so they made a treaty with Massasoit, that, and that treaty would go on for decades. There's 40 or 50 years of peace between these new pilgrims and the Indians because they decided that they wanted to, to agree with each other, and they agreed that they wouldn't harm each other, that they'd be good neighbors. They agreed that they wouldn't steal from much. If they caught anybody stealing, that they would return the goods and that they would return the, the thief to their own people to be punished by their own people. They agreed whenever they got together for a meeting, they'd leave their weapons behind. And that if there was ever a war, they would treat each other as allies. And so they had this kind of simple treaty that they lived by, and it lasted for a long, long time. And you know, we, we talked about last week about how the English-speaking Indian named Samoset, who was from Maine, but he just happened to be down visiting Massasoit at the time the pilgrims were there. And... What a shock it must have been when this strange Indian walked into town and said, hi, and how are you doing? Looks like you guys are building the town here and struck up a conversation in English. And then he went back to the, the tribe with uh, uh, the Wampanoags. And then the next week, he brought Squanto back with him. And Squanto just happened to be of that tribe that, of bloodthirsty white man-killing Indians that had been completely wiped out by the plague but he had been taken by Englishmen across to Europe and had spent years in Europe and had just made it back and found that his tribe had been wiped out by disease, so he had no friends, no family member, and so he kind of settled in with the Wampanoags. And Samoset came back and said, you got to come up and meet these people. So Squanto went up and met the pilgrims, and he decided, you guys are my people now. My, my people that used to live here are dead. You guys are my people. If you'll let me live with you, I will teach you how to survive here. And that's what Squanto became their, their Indian savior, so to speak. And he taught them all sorts of things. He taught them how to hunt, how to fish, and how to um, grow crops and, and pumpkins and vegetables. And corn was the most important thing. They, they, you've probably all heard the stories of how he taught them to take fish and bury it under the corn as fertilizer. And they, of course, they had to guard the corn for the first month or so to keep the, the wolves and various animals from digging up the fish, but once that was done, they had 20 acres of corn after the summer was over. So it was a, 
a great harvest and they had lots of other vegetables that they had grown and, and uh, fruit that they had, wild fruit that they had picked. And uh, Squanto also taught them to get beaver pelts to catch beaver and because the pelts were great for trading. So that was one way that they could uh, build up some financial um, earnings that they could send back over to complete their agreement with the company that had funded their trip and also with the various peoples around that they could do trade with with these beaver pelts. And, and that was all thanks to Squanto and his, and his service to them. So the pilgrims were very thankful because they went from a winter that, that killed half their contingent to a winter where they were stocked up and, and supplied and ready for it. And they had shelters built and they had lots of food that they can eat. So they were very grateful. And, and Governor Bradford, the man that they uh, made as governor, he planned a day of Thanksgiving. It was in October, not November, but he decided let's have a day of celebration because everything God has done for us, because of the, the people that he sent to help take care of us, because of the provision that he's made with the food we've grown and the, plate, the buildings we've made. And he invited Chief Massasoit. He said, come up, Chief. We want you to celebrate in our day of Thanksgiving because you're part of this too. And Massasoit showed up a day early, and wouldn't you know, and he just so happened to bring 90 friends with him. And you can imagine that would have been a little scary, not just because there were, there were 90 Indians and only about 50 pilgrims, so there were more Indians coming, but because that size of a crowd would easily wipe out their winter food supply that they had spent all summer building up. But they knew that this was a time to be thankful for God and they would soon learn that God would continue to provide for them because the Indians didn't show up empty-handed. They brought with them, they had five dressed deer. They're prepared for cooking, not wearing clothes. And they had a dozen wild turkeys, big fat plump wild turkeys that they had caught. So the Indians brought food with them. They also helped to prepare um, food there. They taught the, the pilgrims how to make cakes and how to make uh, a pudding because they had cornmeal and they had taught them how to sap the, the maple trees for syrup and refined maple syrup. So they taught them how to make various tasty things with, with maple syrup and cornmeal. And they, of course, the Indians introduced something that pilgrims would eat from that day forward. Anytime that they got together to watch a movie, they now had popcorn. And so you can be thankful the next time you go to the theater and order popcorn, you can remember the pilgrims and the Indians because it was the Indians that taught the pilgrims that first Thanksgiving how to make popcorn. And of course, the pilgrims shared everything that they had grown. They had lots of different vegetables that they had grown in their gardens and, and they had some flour that they had brought over, precious flour that they brought over from, from England. Um, and they used that and some of the fruits they had found to make pies. So they had blueberry pies and apple pies and cherry pies from the wild fruits they had there. And, of course, they, they also had sweet um, they had grapes, wild grapes they picked and turned into sweet wine that they had made. So that first thing Thanksgiving was a, a feast. I mean, it was a big hit. And everybody ate. They had a great time. They played games. The men had contests between the pilgrims and the Indians. They would race and they would wrestle and they had shooting contests and and the things went so well that the Indians made no sign of leaving. And that first Thanksgiving dinner was extended for an extra three days. So this was a celebration. I mean, this was really a Thanksgiving time. And they, of course, had plenty of time for prayer. I mean, that was the whole purpose that they were having the celebration was to thank God for what He had done. And obviously, the, the pilgrims did much better that second winter. I mean, even, when, even though all these 
people came and dropped in unexpectedly to have this party. They had plenty of food and they had provisions for the winter. And they, that next season, the next planting season, they did have some trouble getting people motivated. To, and so they, they had a little more trouble that next winter. Um, they had organized themselves into a commune. It was they had gone communist, which they figured they got out of the, the book of Acts where the disciples came together and shared everything. So they had one big section of land and everybody was expected to work on it and everybody got an equal share. But they realized that if, if you know, their neighbor wasn't working, well, why should I work? And so they all kind of slacked off and they didn't do very well and they had some trouble that next winter. And so they decided that the following year, that they weren't going to be communists anymore. They were going to try the free market out. And so Governor Bradford split up the, the, the place and said every family gets a section of land, their own section of land. You do with it what you want. You can garden it and anything that grows on it, it's yours. You can eat it, you can trade it, you can sell it, but it's yours. And so the work you do is you're earning for yourself. And that was a much better system and it worked a whole lot better. This is what Governor Bradford explained. This is his his. Um, words about what happened. And so assigned to every family member a parcel of land according to the proportion of their number for that end, only for the present use, but made no division for inheritance and ranged all boys and youth under some family. This had very good success for it made all hands very industrious. So as much more corn was planted than otherwise would have been by any means the governor or any other could use and saved him a great deal of trouble and gave far better content. The women now went willingly into the field and took their little ones with them to set corn, which before would allege weakness and inability. Whom we, we have compelled would have been thought great tyranny and oppression. So people were willingly going out to work. The women were taking their kids out. Where the last season, they were saying, we can't do it, we're too weak, we're just, we can't do it. This season, when it was their property, they said, we're going, and you kids, you get out here and you plant corn with us too. And instead of having to force people to get out there, which would have, people would have said, you can't force us to do this, they did it of their own accord. So the free market system worked a whole lot better for them. And, and from then on, they were a thriving colony and things went a, a whole lot better. And that's the, that's the traditional first Thanksgiving that we've all heard about in some form or another. But it wasn't actually the first Thanksgiving in the continent. The half a century before that, a bunch of French Huguenots had escaped religious persecution in France and they had arrived in what's now Jacksonville, Florida. You know, this is 50 years before the Pilgrims and this is 1564 and they had a Thanksgiving time to God. And then in 1610, uh, after a hard winter in Jamestown, the colonists in Jamestown, they had gone from 409 people down to 60 people. So they also had a, a very difficult winter and, and they prayed for God to help them. And God answered their prayer when a ship arrived that had food and supplies from England. And so they had a time of thanksgiving for God before the, the, the pilgrims got there. And of course, none of these stories resulted in an annual holiday. These were all just one-time events of thanksgiving. The first official day of thanksgiving that became an annual celebration came nine years later in 1619 when a group of 38 English settlers land in Virginia, they called it the Berkeley 100, was their, their colony, and they held a service and they wrote in their, in their charter basically as their colony, they said, 
we ordain that the day of our ship's arrival and the place assigned for a a planticon, plantation in the land of Virginia, shall be yearly and perpetually kept holy as a day of thanksgiving to Almighty God. So that was the first annual thanksgiving. And of course, that wasn't a national holiday because there wasn't a nation yet. This was just various colonies that had set up camp around the, the eastern seaboard. But they all felt the same way. There were enough communities that all got to this new land and felt like God was providing for them and helping to take care of them. And they all felt the same way about the blessings and the providence of God. And so they all had these Thanksgiving traditions that they had got started. And so by the end of the 19th century, there were these religious celebrations that were all purposed to give thanks to God for His provision eventually became traditions at harvest time each year. It all just kind of fell into this time of harvest um, when they would, all across New England, when they would thank God. And so Thanksgiving had become an institution, just kind of naturally, all by itself. And it wasn't until October 3rd, 1863, that Abraham Lincoln decided, well, let's just make this a national holiday. Let's make this, and they had been going through civil war, and things were tough across the nation, and he said, we're going to celebrate with Thanksgiving. And this is just a a little part of his speech. Um, It said, no human counsel hath devised nor hath any mortal hand worked out these great things, the blessings that God had given them. They are the gracious gifts of the Most High God, who, while dealing with us in anger for our sins, has nevertheless remembered mercy. It has seemed to me fit and proper that they should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged as with one heart and one voice by the whole American people. I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States and also those who are at sea and those who are sojourning in foreign lands to set apart and observe the last Thursday in November as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. So Abraham Lincoln, I mean, this is they become a country and Abraham Lincoln said everything that we have is due to God. And so we should thank God. And so he encouraged every person in America, whether you're in the country or you're at sea or visiting somewhere else, that every member of the nation should give thanksgiving and praise to God. And then, of course, it's not the last Thursday in November anymore. We moved it. That was Franklin Delano Roosevelt decided that he would move it up a week. So now it's the third Thursday in November. And his reason was so that, he, he said, so that you would have more shopping time between Thanksgiving and Christmas. So if you wonder where this Black Friday trend got started, you can blame FDR. It's the, and the things have been kind of going downhill since. That we've, got this, we've left this attitude of thanksgiving to God for all His provision, and now we have this attitude of, I need more stuff, because they don't have enough, and so let's go out and spend the, the holiday shopping. And, 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 but it was begun by people who wanted to acknowledge God for His provision. And... Over time, some of that meaning has been lost, and as we push God out of the culture, who do you think? I mean, if you don't believe in God, then, then what's Thanksgiving for? Because the whole purpose was to thank God for what He had done. So if you don't have God anymore, well, who are you thanking? Yourself? Well, that's why people go shopping. I'm thanking myself because I'm such a great person and I deserve the stuff that's on sale. And, and, and so the, you know, the pilgrims came for religious freedom. They were persecuted, and that's what prompted them to to take the gospel and the church around the world and, and to, to, to spread it to the new world. And as the colonies would eventually 
unite, because they were all just separate ragtag colonies, but they all came together and they said, we want to unite and declare independence from, from a human throne. And they quite purposefully ordered themselves as, as a nation to be subjects of God's throne. There was a number of people who said, we have no king but King Jesus. And, and we have a lot to be thankful for. And we still have a lot to be thankful for. We have a lot of blessings in this nation. So we should be thanking God. We should be remembering all the things that He's done for us, how He's provided for us as individuals and as a nation. And, but also, we should be really praying, I mean, fervently praying for a return of the kind of religious freedoms that the pilgrims enjoyed. Because they came to a wilderness, so there was no government to harass them about how they worshipped in church. But we don't have that so much anymore. I mean, today, quite literally... There are people who are sued and fined by the government for practicing their religion. There are people today in our country who are locked in prison for practicing Christianity. It's crazy to think about, but freedom of speech and freedom of religion is being slowly stripped away. The First Amendment and the Bill of Rights, and it's crazy to think about, but people are being fined and jailed just like they were being fined and jailed in England. I mean, it's not quite as widespread as it was in England. We've still got a ways to go before we're that bad. But it is getting worse and worse as time goes by. And, and, and we're moving in that direction of religious intolerance that the pilgrims risked their lives to flee from. And that's the direction that we're going. And so we really need to be on our knees praying that we could return to that kind of religious freedom that they had. And, and the the Constitution and the Bill of Rights has lost its respect in, in Washington, D.C. I mean, the way they treat it is, is it's really sad to watch. If you've read it, and I hope you've read them, I hope you know them pretty well, but, but the, our leaders are making policy that is destroying us from the inside out. They're ignoring their oath of office to obey the laws and to protect the Constitution and to defend the Constitution and they're using various, you know, they're making all sorts of things that are destroying us through our own regulating ourselves to death. And you've all heard of various problems. You know, the EPA's got regulations that cost billions of dollars for, for anybody to be able to make any money. The IRS tax code costs billions of dollars to enforce. Do you know the IRS didn't exist until 1953? That we survived fine without them until the 50s. The, the income tax was unconstitutional until 1913. Almost 100 years ago, we decided that we wanted to tax more, and so they invented the... They had to amend the Constitution in order to tax you for working. And so it's crazy to think about how we've done, you know, not just corporate regulations, but individual regulations that keep you, you know, tell you what kind of light bulbs you can burn in your house, what kind of toilet you can have in your house. I mean, there are so many laws that you don't even think about, but that affect how you can live and those are, you know, bad enough, but then to affect your religious freedom. I mean, the, the freedoms that we designed this country to protect are being stripped away. And it wasn't just the Plymouth Colony. I mean, it wasn't just the pilgrims. The fundamental orders of Connecticut, people call it the first American constitution. This is just a tidbit from that. It says, For as much as it has pleased Almighty God by the wise disposition of His divine providence, so to order and dispose of things that we, the inhabitants and the residents of Windsor, Windsor, Hartford, and Westersfield are now cohabiting and dwelling upon in the river of Connecticut and the lands 
thereunto adjoining, and well knowing we are a people gathered together, the Word of God requires that to maintain the peace and union of such a people, there should be an orderly and decent government established according to God to order and dispose of the affairs of the people at all seasons as occasion shall require. Do therefore associate and conjoin ourselves to be as one public state or commonwealth and do for ourselves as our successors and such as shall be adjoined to us at any time hereafter. Enter into combination and confederation together to maintain and preserve the liberty and purity of the gospel of our Lord Jesus, which we now profess. So they had the exact same idea of the pilgrims. We want to form a government in order to maintain the gospel. Because that's where liberty comes from. That's where our rights come from. The, the great law of Pennsylvania in 1682 said the glory of Almighty God and the good of mankind is the reason and the end of government and therefore government itself is a venerable ordinance of God. And all the colonies had this. Every single colony had something like this where they said, the, the, in 1689, they said, whereas the glory of Almighty God and the good of mankind is the reason and the end of government. They all believed that our rights came from God and that government was designed to protect those rights, to maintain our liberty. Every single colony, every colony that became a nation, Samuel Adams, not the drink, the person. I wish we knew more about Sam Adams, the guy. He said, the right to freedom being the gift of God Almighty is not in the power of man to alienate this gift and voluntarily become a slave. These may be best understood by reading and carefully studying the institutes of the great lawgiver and the head of the Christian church, which are to be found clearly written and promulgated in the New Testament. And it was so many of our founding fathers and so many of our, our origina the original colonies all made this so very clear in the things that they said and the things that they wrote. And of course, in our, the, the the document that declared our independence in 1776 says we hold these truths to be self-evident. There is truth, and the truth says that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with a certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. So this came out of, this is why our nation was built. That is America. That we are given freedom by God and He wants us to live good lives. And the, the, the very next year, after the 1776, we formed our nation, 1777, the Congress bought 20,000 Bibles to be distributed among the people. And they said, the reason we want to buy these Bibles is because it is the great political book of the patriots. Can you imagine the Congress pulling something like that? To buy thousands of Bibles to pass out because that's where our politics should come out of. That's where patriotism should come out of. It, it, it's a fact. It's recorded historical fact that our nation was founded on Christianity. Not just biblical ideas, not just Old Testament laws, but on the principles that the government is ordained to serve God by protecting the rights that He's given to people. And, and, and many Christians fought and died defending that. That's what America is about. And that's why we should be thankful. I mean, if you want to remove the rights of people, first you have to, remove, you have to convince people that, they, that their rights come from government. Because once you do that, then if the government says you're not allowed to, 
to worship anymore, if the government says you're not allowed to speak freely anymore, if the government says you're not allowed to protect yourself anymore, then it's okay because the government gives the rights. So all you got to do is convince people that the government is where you get your rights from. And then, and then you just got to make up some excuse for expediency to be able to, to turn society into governmental slaves. And I imagine that's what happened to the Jews in Egypt, that over time the government convinced them that God wasn't your provider, Egypt is your provider. And so as we take care of you, you work for us. And you can see that happening in our own country, that as the government takes care of us, we have to give back to the government. I mean, it's only right. We have to pay our taxes so that they can build our roads, right? So the more regulations they give, they're good for you. And the more taxes you pay, it's good for you. And so you spend your life working to pay the government. You're a slave of the government. And as long as the government is in charge of your rights, then they're the ones who get to decide which ones you can have and which ones you can't. But that's not the way our country was founded. And the, the people who came over from Columbus and, the, and his exploration down to the pilgrims and the various colonies, to us, 2 Corinthians, our scripture is true. So then, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What is old has passed away. Look, what is new has come. And all these things are from God. From God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and who has given us the, the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting people's trespasses against them, and He has given us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we, the church, are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making His plea through us. We plead with you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us that so that in Him we would become the righteousness of God. Our first and most important citizenship is in heaven. And, and our, we are ambassadors of heaven to this nation. And we are all going to be held accountable for our stewardship of what God has blessed us with. God has given us a great many blessings. God has provided for us in so many ways. And we're going to be held accountable, just like the servants that the master left with the talents and came back and said, what have you done with what I gave you? God is going to come ask us, what have you done with what I gave you? You've got a lot of freedom. What are you doing with it? Your, your primary goal is to spread the gospel around the world to grow the kingdom of God. What are you doing with it? When it comes down to it, God isn't concerned with earthly governments. I mean, He's ordained them in order to promote freedom and protect our rights. That's the purpose of His ordaining governments. But if governments, earthly governments don't honor God, then they're wiped away. And we see that over and over in Scripture. And if America does not honor God, then it doesn't matter anymore. What matters is the kingdom of God. And our greatest contribution to this world will only ever be the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are called to be Christ bearers. And the only way to, to save this nation and make, make it worth saving is to return to honoring God and thanking God for His provision, remembering where all this came from and remembering who the, the provider is and, and remembering to thank Him and honor Him and worship Him. Let's remember what Thanksgiving is all about. It's, it's not a kickoff to shopping season. It's a time to remember what God has been doing for centuries in order to spread the Gospel around the world. I believe God provided for America to be a place where the Gospel could go into the world. And it was for a great many years. It still is in some ways. Not as much as we used to be. 
But there's still many people who are spreading the Gospel in our own country and around the world from America. And that should be our main goal, our number one goal. So, so let's take part in that. To, let's show God our personal thanks for what He's done in our personal lives for, by taking that good news of salvation to whoever we can, our friends, our families, our, our neighbors, our country, and the world. That's what we're here for. So let's show God our thanks by doing what He's asked us to do. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful. You have blessed us in many ways. We are still a very rich nation. We are still very prosperous. And the poorest people in our country are still rich compared to most people in the world. And we're grateful that You have helped us to become so rich. We're grateful that You've provided for us so much. We have so many things. Sometimes I feel like the things get in the way of connecting with You. So God, help us to remember our priorities. Help us to not let the stuff that we shop for become a hindrance to us connecting with You and spreading the Gospel. Help us to remember that You are where everything good comes from. That You are the One who provides all blessings. That You are the One who protects us and keeps us. God, help us not to forget that. And help us to spread Your message. Help us to help this nation by spreading the Gospel. And help this world by spreading the Gospel so that more people might be saved and remember who really takes care of us. We're so glad for You, God. We're so appreciative. And we pray that You would continue to bless us individually. That You would bless our nation with revival. That You would bless us this world by helping us to bring more and more people to You and more and more nations to You and kingdoms to You and this world to You. We trust in Your power, God, and Your glory. Amen.